Hello, HAT readers. Welcome to the December 2023 podcast of The Editor's Picks, the last podcast of the calendar year. I'm Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and today I'm joined by two special guests, our AJT intern, Dr. Dempsey Hughes, assistant professor in the Division of GI Hepatology at Northwestern University. Hi, Dempsey. Glad to have you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And our deputy editor of infectious diseases, Dr. Emily Blumberg, who single-handedly handled many of the COVID papers years ago from the University of Pennsylvania, will be joining us as well. Hey, Emily. Hey, Roz. It's nice to talk about something other than COVID for once. So thanks for that invitation. I totally agree. So um, let me give the, the listeners a run of our podcast. We have quite a number of papers today, and I've organized them as follows. Our first paper will be predicting post-liver transplant outcomes in patients with acute on chronic liver failure using expert augmented machine learning by Jinji et al. from UCSF Division of GI Hepatology, Epi, and Hospital Medicine. We'll then transition to infectious disease topics. The first paper will be clinical features, treatment, and outcomes of MPOX and solid organ recipients, uh, a multicenter case series and literature review by Higgins et al. on behalf of a multicenter MPOX registry group, followed by the first case of rapidly fatal MPOX from a secondary household transmission in a kidney transplant recipient by Fuller et al. from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, a Division of Infectious Disease Pathology, Molecular Medicine, and Cell-Based Medicine. We'll also have a second important discussion about a joint program of antimicrobial stewardship and hospital-acquired infection control to reduce healthcare-associated infections after kidney transplant by Tiago Silva and colleagues at the University Hospital at Madrid, Spain. And then we'll end with kidney papers, as we often do. The first will be a rational approach to guide cost-effective de novo donor-specific antibody surveillance with tacrolimus immunosuppression by Weeb and all from the University of Manitoba, uh, with an editorial by Valenzuela and Manon. And then uh, entitled Personalizing Kidney Transplant Donor-Specific Antibody Surveillance, The Devil is in the Details. And we'll end with an interesting study, the Donor Antigen-Specific Regulatory T-Cell Administration to Recipients of Live Kidney Donors, a one-study consortium trial by Guinan and colleagues from the one-study consortium, accompanied by an editorial by Mukin, Haber, and Weckerly on T-Cell Regulatory Therapy, The Price of Specificity. So with all that mouthful, I'm going to turn it over to Dempsey Hughes to talk about our liver paper today. Thank you, Roz. So the article for discussion is predicting post-liver transplant outcomes in patients with acute and chronic liver failure using expert augmented machine learning by G et al. at UCSF. So briefly, just a little bit of background here. Acute and chronic liver failure is complex clinical syndrome with known high mortality. Liver transplant is potentially curative, but some patients are so critically ill with multi-organ system failure that undergoing liver transplant could prove futile with respect to survival benefit. And then adding to the complexity of transplant recipient selection is the wide range of clinical presentations among ACLF patients. Not only I'm referring just to etiology of liver disease, but also the acuity and and nature of the multi-organ dysfunction. Historically, some tools to help providers with recipient selection are cross-sectional models like the CLIF-CACLF score that account for nature and severity of multi-organ dysfunction. But you know, these scores really predict transplant-free survival, and so they can prove limited when trying to determine post-transplant outcomes. 
So to try to fill this gap in understanding, some machine learning models to predict post-liver transplant mortality for ACLF patients have been introduced. For example, there's the SALT-M score uh, introduced earlier this year by the multi-organ dysfunction evaluation for liver transplantation cons- or model consortium. And it's demonstrated some impressive performance predicting one-year post-liver transplant mortality. Now, in the current article, investigators from UCSF sought to, number one, develop a machine learning model to predict post-liver transplant uh, mortality in ACLF patients. But number two, uh, and this is the, the really unique aspect to it, was to determine how such a model would perform if it also incorporated human expert feedback which theoretically would provide increased clinical context that machine learning may not be able to account for. So the author is using the University of California Health Data Warehouse, which includes electronic health records from three University of California transplant centers. We're able to collect data on all ACLF patients that underwent liver transplant at, uh, under the, the University of California system from 2013 to 2021. And they use this retrospectively acquired cohort to train and validate their machine learning model. They then invited 15 internationally renowned hepatologists and ACLF management and research to complete a survey on the model's algorithms. And then they performed a head-to-head showdown between the machine and the expert augmented machine to determine which model performed the best at predicting one-year post-transplant mortality, 90-day post-transplant mortality, and 90-day readmissions. So pretty briefly in the results, they had a total sample of nearly 1,400 patients. They're predominantly male at 56% of the cohort and of Hispanic or Latin descent at 41.6% of the cohort. For the record, SLK and redo liver transplant patients were included, but did comprise only a small portion of the cohort. In terms of outcomes, 10% of the cohort died by one year. Uh, The majority of them, 7%, had died actually by 90 days post-transplant, and nearly half of the cohort had readmissions within 90 days of transplant. And now we get into it. The main event, the showdown between man versus machine. Technically, I have to say the machine learning model outperformed the experts on predicting both one-year and 90-day mortality based on AUC analysis, though the differences were not statistically significant um, as both models had comparable AUCs basically close to 0.70. Interestingly, for 90-day readmission rates, predictive performance was markedly worse for both models with comparable AUCs towards around 0.56. The authors also compared the their machine learning model and the expert model to establish cross-sectional prognostic models like the MELT sodium score and the CLIF ACLF scores. And both the machine learning model and expert model consistently outperformed those cross-sectional models at predicting one year and 90-day post-transplant mortality. Now, in terms of the machine learning model and expert learning model performance, the discrepancy in performance uh, you know, is perhaps multifactorial. Uh, for example, providers may have placed higher value on different data than the machine. For instance, using or the melt sodium score, excuse me, carried greater prognostic value according to the experts than the machine. And the machine may have uh, weighed lab parameters like hemoglobin or electrolyte levels at higher significance than the experts. And then lastly, some of the coefficients in the model may not be um, appropriately capturing uh, clinical significance. Now, as with all studies, there are some limitations, and chief among them uh, for this article is that the cohort was composed of 
patients already selected for liver transplant by transplant providers and basically due to a favorable prognostic profile. So we inherently have a limited spectrum of the ACLF population in this analysis. And then second, it's good to remember that the pro that this prognostic tool is 100% based on pre-liver transplant recipient data. It doesn't incorporate other factors that can impact post-transplant survival, including surgical or operative factors, donor data, or initial post-transplant care. And that might be why both the machine learning model and uh, expert model were poor predictors of 90-day uh, admissions. But all in all, you know, really an intriguing study. And again, the first to incorporate expert augmented machine learning models in this complex patient population. And perhaps with um, modifications and, and certainly more performance data on such models to come, you know, they may help uncover some different clinical or biochemical parameters of prognostic significance that we really hadn't appreciated before among ACLF patients. So I think it's uh, that's a pretty exciting prospect. Um, and it will definitely be interesting to see the ongoing evolution and incorporation of AI uh, into our, our clinical practice. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it uh, happily back over to, to Roz and uh, for any questions or comments. Thanks. We are running out of time. So I do want to point out that it, it was interesting to me to look at the racial ethnicity distribution of this population when you brought it to our attention that this was all UC patients. And so the number of Asians and African-Americans seems relatively low, though they're similarly represented in the validation cohorts. So I don't know if this will have any impact if you expanded this in the generalizability of this particular model and other systems where Again, I recognize that those populations may have reduced transplant representation in general, but um, it is sort of striking uh, to me what a large Hispanic representation you have of patients. Again, it's the West Coast and it's California. So just something that I thought of that, you know, may be of importance over the long haul. But all right, Emily, we better get to you. All right. Well, completely different topic. Totally different. I'm going to do two totally different topics. Remember MPOX? That was last year's pandemic. So as opposed to COVID-19, this perhaps is going to be in our rearview mirror, although there's certainly the potential for it to come back, which is why it's worth reviewing the experience with this. So MPOX is a pox virus, an orthopox virus that's related to smallpox. And back last May, May 2022, we started seeing cases worldwide. And whereas this virus previously had been primarily observed in parts of Africa, it was now being found in North America and in Europe. And the illness was associated with diffuse skin rashes and sometimes systemic diseases. There was a clear cohort of individuals affected overall, and it was highly associated with sexual transmission, especially in men who have sex with men. This became very important because the spread of it initially was was quite substantial, and we worried about how this was going to go throughout the world, and especially in transplant, how it was going to affect our immunosuppressed populations. And so, as often happens in early days of uh, outbreak, uh, multiple centers got together to pool their experiences. And so the paper by Higgins and colleagues actually explored that experience 
The number of patients involved was quite small, actually only 11, but they were notable for the fact that most of them had had some close contact, in most cases, in fact, sexual contact with individuals who were infected. A number of the patients were infected already with HIV, and so they probably had two potential hits on their immune system, both the immune suppression of transplant as well as HIV infection. And these individuals were notable for the extensive risk of more extensive disease, especially more skin lesions, and in a few cases, systemic symptoms. And in fact, one patient even died. Two had acute kidney injury, and a number had co-infections, including with hepatitis B, syphilis, and opportunistic infections, including CMV. So we learned a couple of things from this. The first was that, as with other infections, immunosuppressors, including transplant patients, were more likely to have more significant, severe, and disseminated disease. But we were also able to treat these patients with a drug that had been trialed initially for smallpox, tecavirumat, which turned out to be pretty effective in the majority of these patients. And we also could identify, as the author showed, that this was a population where vaccination could make a difference and potentially stem the tide of further infections. And in fact, that's what happened worldwide was there was a tremendous push to vaccinate the the at-risk individuals and those with close contact, and that really has really abruptly terminated the vast majority of these infections spreading throughout the population. But there was another lesson to be learned from this, and this is actually highlighted in the Fuller paper, and that is we need to think about our transplant patients who live with patients with MPOX. In the Fuller patient, they actually had an individual who was not sexually involved, but taking care of somebody who had MPOX. And lo and behold, they themselves got MPOX and ultimately died of it. And I think it's important to remember that our patients are at increased risk for getting infection with close contact, even if it's not sexual contact and that these individuals should be instructed to really take precautions if they're living in a household with somebody with a communicable disease like MPOX because you don't need to be sexually involved with somebody to actually get this infection. And I think this was a very important point, and we need to be aware of it because it is certainly possible that MPOX can return to our world again. So that's just a little brief vignette. It, it was a small outbreak, but with pandemic reach and something to be aware of for the future. I'd like to turn now to a second paper, or third paper, I guess, which is really about antimicrobial stewardship and hospital-acquired infections. So this is a paper by Silva from uh, Spain, and they named it the Hippo- Hippomenes study, which I've learned now is based on Greek mythology and an individual who took on very challenging situations. And this, in fact, is what they were dealing with in Spain. We know that multidrug resistant organisms are really running rampant through our transplant population. They're really the sentinel chicken for all the most resistant organisms. And we also see a lot of C. diff. We know in infectious disease that if we could only control people's antibiotic use, 
and how they take care of their patients in terms of infection control settings, we could make a difference. And that's what these investigators decided to do. They used a quasi-experimental design because they felt you couldn't really do a case control study in a prospective way since that might not be ethical since you thought that, you know, we think that these interventions are actually important and will be meaningful. And so what they did is they actually did a two-pronged approach to impact patient care. The first thing they did was they started an antimicrobial stewardship program specific for their kidney transplant population. And what they did is three times a week, individuals in the infectious disease stewardship program would meet with prescribers and look at all the antibiotic prescriptions and review how these prescriptions were being done to limit the use of broader spectrum antimicrobials, to decrease the use of antimicrobials where they were perhaps were not indicated, and to provide feedback, person-to-person feedback, to actually impact the choice and duration of antibiotics. They also, of course, promoted this in the electronic medical record. But I think that what we've learned with antimicrobial stewardship, it's that person-to-person interaction that really makes a difference. And that's what they did. But they didn't stop there. They actually concurrently rolled out a hospital-acquired infection control program, which emphasized a few things. The first was hand hygiene. And they knew they were emphasizing it across the hospital, but had specific education for the transplant program as well, because they actually saw the use of those antimicrobial gels go up during this period. So whether people were actually using it to wash their hands or to do something else, we don't actually know. But presumably, there was more hand hygiene. They also looked at how individuals were, you know, using catheters and precautions for catheter place, not urinary catheters, but central venous lines and other intravenous lines. And they looked specifically at the care of surgical sites, including uh, chlorhexidine use for the surgical site maintenance. And so they implemented both programs at once, and they then prospectively evaluated both antimicrobial use and hospital-acquired and other infections over a six-month follow-up after this was implemented, and they compared them to the 10 months prior to the intervention. And what they demonstrated was a couple of really important things. The first was they actually cut down on the use of broader-spectrum antimicrobials, especially meropenem, a carbapenem that has clearly been overused in the transplant population. And they were able to show that there were some MDRO organisms that were seen in lower numbers coincident with this um, intervention. They also showed that there was a lower incidence of urinary tract infections in this population, whether it's related to the infection control processes that they put in place is not clear, but certainly it was uh, concurrent with that. And so it appeared that this dual approach of managing antibiotics and emphasizing infection control and hand hygiene actually might make a difference in terms of our antibiotic use. And the assumption is that if we can really curtail antibiotic use in the long run, that our transplant patients may ultimately have fewer of these really highly resistant organisms and perhaps even fewer hospital-acquired infections. And so 
I think this is such a common sense approach, makes a lot of sense to do it. We're all trying to work on these things in our hospitals, but this article gives us more fuel for pushing this forward by showing us that these interventions, if maintained on a continuous basis, really might make a difference. And maybe our transplant patients won't be the ones shedding the multi-drug resistant organisms throughout hospitals moving forward. So I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. And I'm excited to see how other centers, you know, use this knowledge to move forward. Well, that's a great summary. Uh, I apparently looked up, my daughter was a classics minor, that this hypomenus died. There's a whole, no, he got turned into a lion. There's a whole other story because he married someone and and he won this race and he did it through cunning. So he overcame a challenge, a major challenge that he wouldn't, shouldn't have overcome being clever and cunning. I don't know if I'd call this group cunning, but they certainly were hardworking. And Again, it, it looks like all this intervention happened seven or eight years ago. So was the delay in getting this out really the follow-up that they were looking longitudinally at this about these outcomes over time, you think? Or just getting you know, all the collated? You know, I don't want to be critical because I thought it was a neat paper. But then I was like, oh, 2000. Yeah, it's old data. It's hard to know where the holdup was. I think in ID now, we're giving everybody a three-year pass for COVID. But that's not this long a path. So I'm not really sure what the holdup was for them. I will say that antimicrobial stewardship is one of the hottest topics in the infectious disease world. I know that's hard to believe, but true, because we really think that how we use antibiotics is going to tell us what we are going to be looking at in the future. And I don't know what stopped them from publishing sooner, but you'll be seeing more and more and more interventions that are based on stewardship coming forward. And I think this is like stewardship month or week or last week was because we had the VA presented their um, sort of centralized order entry for antibiotics. And you have these screens that come up with why are you doing this? What's the length of treatment? What are you treating? And and, uh, again, I think it's really interesting that we can mechanize some of these approaches, especially the hand washing, which hopefully we have down now. Well, right. thanks. We that was hope. a great, yeah, right. Well, that was a great paper. Thanks um, for coming, Emily. I know you've got other things. So I'm going to wrap up in a very short period of time. I have two different paper topics. The first is uh, Chris Weeb and colleagues at Manitoba, the rational approach to cost-effective de novo antibody surveillance. So this Manitoba group has written a lot about de novo DSA and DSA monitoring and the associations with the development of de novo DSA. And this is a follow-up of all those of prior studies with additional observations to help identify risk factors for those individuals that get de novo uh, donor HLA DSA. So again, remember that the development of DSA is associated with a higher risk of antibody-mediated rejection and worse graft outcome. It's part of the IBOX scoring system as another example of, of the potency of its development. So and and it's been the focus of you know monitoring strategies both through ESOT the European Society has come up with a rubric and the Star Working Group which is an Ashi AST project have tried to come up with what are appropriate ways of monitoring people and as many of you maybe not in liver world or ID world but certainly some programs just monitor 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 it's expensive it's time consuming it is blood tests and it makes money for the lab but 
Um, I think there's some fatigue and also, right, long-term for the patient, you know, how far and how long. And there was also sort of a sense when guidelines were being made a few years ago, well, what are we going to do about it? Okay, so you get it and you biopsy and they have ABMR and how do you treat it? So there is a level of futility here as well, but I would say that therapeutic development is an area of my interest and certainly there are strategies coming out that are being tested. So they took a very long, a very large cohort of theirs from January 99 to April 2022 of about 950 participants, uh, individuals. They excluded anybody that had pre-transplant DSA, which was a minority, only about 45, and excluded primary non-function. So this is about 45 transplant patients per year. And they follow these people. Like So unlike U.S. systems where, and some, you know, and other large systems where prevalent patients that are doing well get sort of sent out to primary care docs, they follow everyone. I would say the characteristics of the cohort um only about half got induction therapy. Typically, of the choices, basiliximab was more common. All were prednisone-containing, and most had tacrolimus. They didn't start that way in the 90s, but by the mid-2000s, they converted. They did standard serologic typing, but they also did oligospecific typing on their patients in the lab and actually did some additional next-gen sequencing to verify because we're going to talk about this applet mismatch, which is their common theme. So again, they used specific mismatch software to identify specific amino acids that may induce or trigger an antibody-mediated response. There's different programs that are used, and they often get debated upon, but um, the bottom line is that um, this is the convention they used, specifically looking at DR and DQ. So from the perspective of the results, they developed a risk stratification, which is based on previous publications of individuals at low, intermediate, or high risk to develop de novo DSA. And using those levels of mismatch between DR and DQ, they identified that 40% of their cohort is high risk, 36% or almost 40% intermediate, and the rest were low risk with a mean year of follow-up of eight years. And overall, they didn't have a very high rate of de novo DSA, only about 10%. And of those individuals, two-thirds had class two alone. The rest had either class one or in a lower number had both. And, you know, from a univariate, you know, analysis, they identified that the use of cyclosporin was associated with a higher risk of de novo DSA. And clearly the reverse is if you were on tacrolimus, it was significantly lower. And that the mismatch score of high versus low or high versus intermediate were statistically significant to having de novo DSA. And importantly, they identify younger age. Younger age here is defined as a group of less than 35 years. So welcome to the old world for everyone else that's 36 and older. But in all seriousness, um, they look at uh, DSA-free survival based on age groups. They divided groups of age with 10 years of range, so like 35 to 45, 45 to 50, and so forth. And as shown in that figure, really the, the group that had the most de novo DSA or most frequency was the less than 35. And um, again, the risk of mismatch associated with the development of de novo DSA, they show again, again, sort of survival curves showing, you know, the high versus the intermediate versus the low. But I would also point out that their graph survival is incredible because if you look at 12-year graph survivals, they're still like 80%. So... I don't really remember or call. I, I have, more than half of these patients are living donor. So, um, and again, the frequency of de novo DSA was low. Um, and then they they 
try to analyze this based on age and risk. So it's a complicated figure 3A, but they actually show if you're younger and or in these different age ranges, they compare the low, intermediate, and high risk. And lo and behold, they came up with three groups of what they call interest, or um, and they call them RAM, recipient age or molecular mismatch. And interestingly, these three groups divided the most. Low, low risk with less than 35 did okay, you know, how they did versus the intermediate age, uh, risk group that was over 35. And then they had a high risk group, which were younger and that were intermediate or high risk. And they saw significant separation. And so they suggest that you can, with multivariate analysis, sort of separate people. So if you're greater than 35, if you're high risk, you know, you're going to have issues and you're probably not going to do as well as someone who's young and low risk. So just being young doesn't really give you a bad, bad news. And they did some other sensitivity analyses we don't have time to talk into. But again, the point is they, they looked at this, these risk factors and said, if we apply this to all of our patients, we, and we decide that we're going to change our current surveillance strategy, which was quite detailed, um, out to the first two years, we would cut the number of tests by half. So grouping the low, intermediate, or high risk RAM groups, not the mismatch, but if you took the RAM group at, at that was low versus high, you could really significantly cut the number of tests. And so their suggestion is that rather than us doing the testing on everybody, that we should consider these, uh, apply these principles to our centers. So I think this is a nice paper. Uh, again, the notion of epilet mismatch is being a potential predictive factor for de novo DSA, potentially a prognostic factor for graft outcome has been sort of the, you know, the whole, this group keeps writing about it and hoping that the FDA will approve it eventually as a biomarker of interest. But in the accompanying tutorial, I think we point out a number of issues. And and I think first and foremost, there are some clinical issues in this study. You know, this is a single site. It's retrospective analysis of prospectively collected data. You know, the numbers of transplants per year are relatively low, and I think many of us in larger centers really struggle to get complete information on a routine basis. Out to 12 years would be lucky. I I say out to one year, and I'm happy, and two years, I'm even happier, and keeping people on the straight and narrow is really difficult. You know, though TAC levels have been associated with the development of de novo DSA in prior studies, they really didn't incorporate the level of TACRolemus. They said TAC is really protective, but they were really the, the group that showed that a level threshold of five nanograms per mil was important. And so I, I didn't see that included. Some of the distribution of the population is very different than many centers. There's a lot of living donors. Many centers in the U.S., that's the minority of, of donors. They, we, you know, their PRA greater than 20 was not common in their group. And, you know, probably about 30% of our centers use steroid-free therapy. And so I would say that maybe that they should just ignore all this and say, well, they're steroid-free, they're at a higher risk of de novo DSA. I think there are some technical issues pointed out by Valenzuela in terms of that while epilet mismatch seems to be better than just simple antigenic uh, antigen mismatch, you know, the, the, the models of molecular mismatch, which is the variation in amino acid sequences, are really have oftentimes been sort of 
been, I, I use the word imputed, but sometimes, you know, they're included and analyzed based on a group population. And so, um, though this imputation is something that is standard done, it really is concordant with individuals of, of European ancestry. And so, in some U.S. populations where the frequency of African-American and Hispanic patient populations is very high, it's not clear that epilet mismatch as a general concept will be as provocatively predictive um, as they note in their patient populations. And though they say that they have validated it in uh, one study in Colorado, I think that it really sort of remains to be seen. There are some other questions in terms of patient management. You know, they group everybody under 35 is important. You know, it's not really clear if the all the intermediate patients' risk should be managed the same way. Maybe they should have more testing. Maybe their immunosuppressive levels should be adjusted. They don't talk about it. And, you know, they they lump everybody over the age, I want to say, of 58 as being old. And, you know, the population over 65 is growing in terms of recipients. And so it would be great to see some more in-depth understanding of what to do with these elderly patients that are on getting closer in age to what really is considered old. But when you look at somebody like uh, Rosalind Carter living to be 96, I don't know what old is anymore. And I'm going to, I know you guys probably may have a question, but I'm going to move on for time's sake. The last uh, paper I'm going to talk about is by Guinan and colleagues, the, the DAR TREG, the donor-specific TREG administration from the one study. So the one study is a big consortium. It's an international consortium that studied cell-based therapies in the context of, of kidney transplantation, typically living donors, sometimes deceased donor. And this study partic- particularly focused on the donor antigen reactive T-cell adoptive transfer studies. This is not a big population. They did three individuals that received the DAR Tregs and compared them to four controls. Um, it's sort of an interesting consortium because the cells were developed in one country and sometimes transported to another and all the transplant centers really differed. But um, I, I believe that the lead study, the lead site for the recipients here, I believe was maybe MGH. Um, I can't remember, but certainly um, a lot of contributor contributors uh, in here. Suffice it to say, they developed a standard of care treatment, which included basiliximab induction and sort of standard of care along the symphony study. But then for those that got these adoptive transfer, and, and those patients did pretty well. I mean, there weren't any rejection episodes. In comparison, the treatment group received these cells, but they didn't receive any induction, so no basiliximab. Again, regular, you know, basiliximab is anti-CD25. Tregs were identified and stimulated ex vivo. So just a little bit about the PrEP. Peripheral blood was taken from the recipient. It was put in culture with donor-irradiated cells. A mixed lymphocyte culture was elaborated with costimulatory blockade, and then Tregs were selectively isolated based on CD4, CD25 positivity, and CD127 low expression. And they got pretty good yields over within quite a number of days. I mean, compared to polyclonal Tregs, where you have to expand for like weeks on end to get enough, I want to say that I recall that this this product development really was a relatively short timeline in terms of uh, getting cells generated within about about a week and a half is my recollection. They didn't have to do these repeated transfers. 
So how did they do? Well, the you know everybody got a protocol biopsy. The regular people did fine. And then interestingly, after a, a surveillance biopsy at eight months, they tapered MMF. They took their mycophenolate off. So patients were on sort of low-dose TAC and prednisone, and none of the three rejected. They did have some for-cause biopsies. Two of the three DART-REG recipients had it. They didn't really see any rejection. Uh, one showed aggregates of, of these lymphocytes within the kidney that were probably were FOXP3 positive. They didn't see peripheral expression of Tregs in the blood. I guess that's not surprising because even though we give a lot, they seem to be homing to the kidney. And these patients all were rejection-free for over five years after tapering the therapy. So why did this paper get published, you might say? Well, I think there's really no good data. This is one of the few studies that I'm aware of that use DART regs. Um, and there's limited data about the persistence of these cells. So we don't know if they stayed in the kidney forever. They didn't do five-year biopsies, but that would be sort of interesting. And the longevity of these of these t- abductive Tregs is really in question. It's it's an important question to answer. And hopefully they can follow some of these patients up, even though it's N equals three. You know, why is DART, you know, there was a lot of theoretical, con- you know, thoughts that these donor-specific Tregs are better than polyclonal. One, you don't have to expand them over and over and over again and subject them to potential contamination by whatever is in the lab, even though we're careful. But the notion is that if you're giving a suppressor cell, so to speak, that's specific to the donor antigen, then that would not preclude an immune response of the recipient to, say, a vaccine or some other infection that they have. Again, they didn't do that comparison because these experiments in humans are very difficult. They were able to use peripheral blood, which is sort of a nice not to have leukapheresis, but maybe in a, in a larger study, they may have to consider leukapheresis. So kind of a nice little pilot. Um, it, it seemed to support in these three people who are at low immune risk, I would add, to have reduction of their immunosuppression, though maintaining TAC, which is interesting because in other Treg studies I've been involved with, we usually convert them off of tacrolimus and put them on mTOR. Um, there's a nice little editorial that I mentioned um, looking at a sort of, a, it gives a really quick summary of all past experiences with regulatory T cells, and it questions the ability, you know, to use and no induction or whether induction could ever be used. Again, the, the induction agents we have would probably diminish these cells or, or, lit, or limit these cells because they would be uh, lysed. And then they also talk a little bit about these chimeric antigen receptor Tregs as maybe really the next step where, you know, you'll have really good specificity and you don't need tons and tons of those cells. But again, experimental data, preclinical data are underway now and the persistence of these cells is not really clear. So you might infuse them and have protection for a number of months, but how long they'll last is not known. So I'm going to wrap it up and see if you guys have any questions. And if not, I really appreciate both of you coming on and um, giving us your expertise because I could not talk about any of the things you did. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 